If you have your Bibles, uh, and I pray that you do, if you don't have a Bible, there's one right there, hopefully in the seat back in front of you. If you have it, turn with me to Joel, Joel chapter 2, and some of you are like calf looking, what, oh, calf looking at a new gate. Joel, you'll find Joel between the books of uh, Hosea and Amos, just beyond the book of Daniel. And uh, I want us to begin by reading a passage from, um, from Joel uh, chapter 2 for our message this morning. Kind of an obscure passage to go along with the message, but I pray you'll understand here in just a few moments of time. Beginning in verse number 12, in verse number 12 of Joel chapter 2, the Bible says, Therefore also now, saith the Lord, Turn ye even to me with all your heart, and with fasting, and with weeping, and with mourning. And rend your heart, and not your garments, and turn unto the Lord your God. For he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and of great kindness, and repenteth him of the evil. Who knoweth if he will return and repent, and leave a blessing behind him? Even a meat offering, and a drink offering unto the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion, sanctify a fast, call a solemn assembly. Gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children and those that suck the breast. Let the bridegroom go forth of his chamber and the bride out of her closet. Let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep between the porch and the altar and let them say, Spare thy people, O Lord, and give not thine heritage to reproach that the heathen should rule over them. Wherefore should they say among the people, Where is their God? Let's go to the Lord in prayer this morning. Father, we thank you for the precious word of God. We thank you for your word and its truth in our lives. And God, I pray that you'll be with me this morning, that you will use my lips as the device to communicate exactly what you want us to hear. God, I do pray that if there's someone in our midst or somebody listening online, God, that has never trusted Christ as their Lord and Savior, that today, above all, that they would begin that relationship of all relationships, that they would come to the foot of the cross, and that they would lay their sins there, and that they would call out upon the name of the Lord for the forgiveness of sin, and that they might enter into the greatest relationship of all, one with you through Christ. Father, I pray for our church, I pray for us as individual believers that we might hear from heaven that which you desire today and that we would make application in a way which brings you honor and it brings you glory. God, I pray that you'll help me to step down as you step forward to have the rule and the reign in our service today and we'll be careful to give you the praise for it in Jesus' name and for his sake, amen and amen. This morning I want us to conclude our series on promises and and you see the title there, To the Church. And so I want us to consider some principles that we find in Scripture and make application for us as the church. Obviously, when, when I read a passage from Joel and I say that I'm going to do a message to the church, immediately, if you know the Old Testament and the New Testament, you say, well, how are you going to use Joel to actually talk about promises to the church? And what I would say is just hang in there with me for a few minutes and I pray that the Lord will give us all clarity. You see, at the time of Joel's writing, uh, truly the nation of Israel was in trouble. And as I look around today in 2019, I think everybody in this room would agree that the nation 
that we live in is in trouble. The Israel, the, uh, God's children, they were continually being attacked from every side. Their enemies were rising up against them. At the time in which we read this passage, they've experienced an extreme drought. There's an invasion of uh, locusts, if you please, in the land. And quite honestly, these tragedies had left the land in ruins and the people demoralized. And I don't know if we're not careful, and we are a people that can very easily become demoralized, then it becomes difficult to live that life, that abundant life that Jesus says that he had come and to give us that life. And so, uh, as we read in Joel chapter 2, there's not a specific sin that is mentioned. But if one will do a thorough study of scripture, you'll actually be able to see that at this time, uh, the overwhelming problem, it's clear that the children of God had slipped into a deep state of, of, um, of corruption, complacency, and apathy. I mean, at this point in the story, things are waxing worse at every turn. And so God uses nature and he uses Israel's enemies, quite frankly, to bring about divine judgment. So stick with me here, and I think this is where you'll begin to understand where I'm going with this. Because you see, God uses trials, he uses trials that they faced as a nation to awaken the hearts of his people, not as a nation, but as people, and to call them back to himself. The Bible is God's word, and it is to direct our attention to him. Unfortunately, we live in a day and age where we, many people use God's word to direct their attention towards themselves and that's not what God has given his word for and so I cannot help but to wonder if that's exactly what our God may be doing in the day and age in which we live not because folks let me just say this not because of what's taking place intellectually or politically but because of what's taking place in our churches I'm not laying I'm not laying blame outside or at anybody's doorstep, but what is taking place in our churches morally and spiritually, and then we wonder why, what is going on in the good old United States of America. Years ago, I actually reprinted this because I'm not uh, uh, keen enough to remember my own hashtags. You know, hashtag is a new thing, and uh, I'll soon be 53, and I'm not really sure how to use the hashtags. In fact, whenever I've done a hashtag, I always ask, am I supposed to use capital letters or lowercase letters? I mean, it's really a problem. But a few years ago, some of you were around, you may remember me stating this. I said, so many people are crying about the condition of our country when in reality we should be weeping over the state of our church. Hashtag Pastor Greg. If you want it, you can come get it later, all right? <laughs> I won't remember it tomorrow, right? But so many people are complaining about the condition of our country instead of weeping over the condition or the status of our church. But I am encouraged today. We can be encouraged because Psalm 33, verse number 12 said, Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Oh, it's also been said that as the church goes, so goes the nation. And so I want to remind us historically that there was a time in the church, when the church actually stood for the things of God. This will be the longest introduction of a message you will ever hear. There's a long introduction and about this much a message. But I hope that the Lord will use it to convict our hearts and to challenge us as we go forward in the days ahead. Think about it. 
Historically, in the 1970s, God used men like Jonathan Edwards, George Whitfield, John and Charles Wesley, Francis Asbury, and many others to carry the gospel around our nation. While our nation was fighting for independence, the Lord was actually sending a spiritual revival. If we fast forward a century later in the 1800s, America was divided once again. We were facing turbulent times, if you please. Our nation was divided and, and its legislature fought over states' rights and independence. But on Fulton Street in the mid-1800s, mid I have to quit saying 19, but in the mid-1800s, on Fulton Street in New York City, there was a man by the name of Jeremiah Lamphere. Jeremiah Lamphere was a businessman, and Jeremiah Lamphere, he decided that he was going to call a group of businessmen together in New York City of all places. Can you imagine that? He said, we're going to get together and we're going to pray. And so on September the 23rd uh, of, of 1857, Jeremiah Lamphere gathered with six men on Fulton Street and they prayed for America and he continued to invite other people the very next week and he was saying just pray if you have five minutes 10 minutes 20 minutes or an hour whatever you have during your lunch hour we're going to get together and pray for our country the first week on September the 23rd 1857 there were six men that gathered the very next week as they stood at the prefaces of October of that year 40 men gathered Soon, Jeremiah understood that he had a problem. He couldn't fit everybody on a weekly basis, so he moved it to a day-by-day -day basis. It was soon that hundreds and hundreds of businessmen were gathering on Fulton Street day after day after day to pray for America. Eventually, it was said that there were 10,000 businessmen in New York City in 1857 who were praying for the nation spiritually. Other churches in New York began to pray. And before long, God sent revival. It was said that less than six months later, are you ready for this? In a country of then 30 million people, over a million people had trusted Christ as their Lord and Savior. Oh, I believe that that all began with a group of men just deciding to pray for their nation. Oh, my friends, I believe that if we too would get serious once again, though, about our relationship with God, that he would do this again. Many years ago, it was the Associated Press who released a story back from 1967. 1967, in a place called Seymour, Texas, there was a young man by the name of Gene Tips. Gene Tips was involved in a serious car accident. And after that accident, Gene Tips slipped into a coma. Many of you may have heard this story before. He slipped into a coma for three uh, weeks and then after three weeks remained in a state of unconsciousness for eight years. It was said that while Gene Tips was in this state of unconsciousness in the hospital in Seymour, Texas, that his mom and dad and family members would come day by day and they would prop Gene Tips up in bed. They would sit him in the chair. They would move him. They would exercise his limbs. They would talk at him, not to him because he couldn't hear them, he couldn't respond to them, and so they talked with their son, and for eight long years, this was the routine. The good news came eight years later. A nurse walked in to check the vital signs of Gene Tips, and lo and behold, Gene Tips had awoken out of his eight-year-long sleep. 
after he awoke, everybody being shocked and happy, they asked him, someone said, what was it like, Gene, to be asleep for eight years? And this was his reply. He says, it's all very strange. He said, my girlfriend is now married and has children. The war in Vietnam is over. And to everyone else, they say I'm 28 years old. But to me, I'm only 20. Have you ever gone to sleep for a long winter's nap and woke up to feel a little bit disoriented? Can you imagine waking up eight years later? Oh, I know there's some here. Man, we would say, man, an eight-year-long nap? That sounds delicious. Oh, I wake up and I'm in my 60s. What in the world? Could you imagine? Oh, the thought of it all. But let's return historically to the state of the church. Because you see, I can look around this room and see that some of you do remember the 1950s. Oh yeah, some of you may remember the 1940s. Oh, but in the 50s, it was the post-World War II days. The economy was good and patriotism was high. In the 1950s, a man by the name of Billy Graham was filling up stadiums all around this country and revival was breaking out. People were trusting Christ left and right. In 1954, the Southern Baptist Convention, they actually had a slogan in 1954 and their slogan was, A Million More in 54. Oh, God was a big deal in the United States of America in the 1950s. But you see, by the end of the 1950s, churches across this nation had decided that they had worked hard enough and long enough, and they decided to take a rest. And as the church went to sleep, that old roaring lion that walks about seeking whom he may devour went to work. And the 1960s came along. In 1960s, Christianity as a whole went into a modern-day hibernation. The 60s were explosive times, to say the least. Beginning in Baltimore, Maryland, there was an American activist and atheist by the name of Madeline Murray O'Hare. You might remember her. She was instrumental, uh, along with some congressmen, in seeing to it that God, that prayer, and the Bible were permanently expelled out of our public schools. The hippies and the flower children of the day ushered in drugs and a free love culture. Meanwhile, our nation sent men and women to war in a country called Vietnam. Racial violence was rocking the inner cities. And during the 1960s, three tragic assassinations took place. You remember them well if you were around. In 1963, JFK, and then in 1968, we had RFK and MLK. And just like Gene Tips' story... The church slept on. As the church was sleeping, the 1970s dawned. It truly was the age of Aquarius. The feminist movement emerged. Abortion became the talk of the town. President Richard Nixon was brought down by the Watergate scandal. Financially speaking, this country was in ruins. Inflation was through the roof. Our nation faced a huge energy crisis. Some of you may remember, as I did, as a, as a boy going to the gas station on certain days, depending on your license plate number. Was it even or odd? Were the only times you could purchase gas? Oh, there was an energy crisis in this country, and morality and patriotism were at an all-time low. Our soldiers returned from Vietnam 
and in many cases were looked upon with disdain and treated as criminals. At the end of the 1970s, you may recall, there was a little country that has never ceased to get out of the news by the name of Iran that took 52 American hostages for 444 days. They not only held 52 American hostages, they held the entire United States of America captive. It seemed like nothing was going right. And although there was moral decay and corruption continuing to abound and abound, the church slept on. Then came the 1980s with the New Age movement as it took center stage. There was widespread interest in the occult, witchcraft, psychics, and yes, even Satanists I was looking at. And while the body of Christ was busy learning and studying about their horoscopes, Christianity suffered after the moral failures of television evangelists and pastors, one by the name of Jim Baker with the PTL, Praise the Lord Ministries. I'm not sure that brought the Lord any praise. And another followed right behind him was Jimmy Swaggart with a prostitute. Crack cocaine polluted our cities while pornography polluted our minds. Gangs took over the streets of our neighborhoods and cities. But the church hit the snooze button and slept on. As this one nation under God, so to speak, entered the 1990s, the church decided to go along for the ride by hanging up the proverbial do not disturb sign on the door. And to be honest, it would take me too long, really too long to chronicle all the anti-biblical policies and positions that pervaded this nation during the 1990s. And many of those policies still pervade this nation today. And the church of the living God was silently snoring along. And now, today, we are 19 years into the new millennium. Yes, we made it beyond 2000. You remember they said at the break of 2000, we were all going to vanish. But 19 years into the new millennium, our nation has been attacked by radical Islamic terrorists. Immorality is on the rise. The saving gospel has been pretty much replaced by a social gospel full of prosperity. It's now offensive to even mention sin from the pulpit, less, much less in our neighborhoods or to address it as God does. We seem to be living in a day that celebrates any, any type of anti-biblical propaganda that seeks to brainwash you, me, and our children. Today, pastors and teachers are beginning to be censored and to be silenced from preaching God's word the way it was meant to be preached. And now, not only is our nation divided intellectually and politically, but it appears that the church of the living God is increasingly divided morally and spiritually as well. And so I have to wonder, when and if we as believers, we as Christians, as we as those who name the name of Christ as the church will ever wake up? Oh, we are living in some crazy times. Now look back with me at our text. Because what was taking place here with Joel the prophet in Joel chapter 2, I believe, although this was written to the Jews back in the 8th century, there's some debate whether it was the 8th century or the 9th century B.C., but I believe what was written to them then still holds some principles for you and I today. And maybe, just maybe, we can learn from those principles. Notice number one, if you're a note taker, I only have two thoughts. And you say, praise the Lord. Number one, notice with me the plea. The plea from God in verses number 12 and 13. And I want you to see, look at the screen there. Therefore also now saith the Lord. Now just stop there and look at that phrase. Therefore also now. 
it's as if, and I put in my notes, it's as if God was saying, even though your women have polluted and poured out offerings to idols of wood and stone, even though your men have taken your little children down to the fires and actually sacrificed your children to the demon god Moloch, even though your politicians are corrupt, even though your priests are scandalous, even though your hands are stained with blood, he says, therefore also now, saith the Lord. Notice what he says. He says, even though, he says, I want you to return to me. God is making a plea. He says, turn back to me. And I want you to know that God's plea to return for the children of Israel was not simply a, a plea to return. But folks, here's where the rubber doesn't meet the road that we might not want to hear today. But it was a plea to repent. It was not simply a plea to return, it was a plea to repent. You see, notice what the Bible says. It says, turn ye even to me. And notice what the word of God says. It says, with all your heart, and with fasting, and with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your heart, and not your garments, and turn unto the Lord your God. You see, God wasn't simply looking for some external display of religion. He was looking for heart change. He was looking for his children, the people who were known as the children of God, he was looking for them to change. He was looking for people, quite honestly, who were broken over their own sinfulness. We live in a day and age where we like to point fingers, don't we? In fact, it's sad to me, but sometimes we actually celebrate the sin of other people. I actually have seen where people get excited about celebrating the sin of other people. There's nothing celebratory about the fact that our leaders sin. There's nothing celebratory about the fact that you and I sin. Oh, God help us. And we wonder what's going on in our country. This is still God's plea for us today. He wants us to repent. He's not making us a plea to, uh, to simply return. He wants us to repent not for religious purposes, but to repent because of the relationship that we have with him through Jesus Christ our Lord. Unfortunately, much like then, we were living in a time where believers get religious about everything under the sun. We do. We get religious about everything under the sun. In fact, if you look back here in Joel, then the Jews were very religious about idol worship. Today... We're very religious about idol worship. We love our idols. We don't talk about them, though. We don't want to talk about our idols, but we love our idols. If we're honest, we get religious about everything. I mean, we get religious about our hobbies. We get religious about our possessions. We get religious about our jobs. We get religious about our sports. Boy, do we get religious about our sports. We get religious about our politics. We get religious about everything under the sun except for God. And then we wonder why. Back then the Jews were religious in offering sacrifices to false gods. Today many believers are religious about making sacrifices to everything except for the Lord. But I put here a question for me and for all of us. When was the last time that our hearts were really passionate about God? See, a lot of people like to talk about God and a lot of people like to point fingers about he didn't do that for me, he didn't do that for me. And if we're not careful, we start pointing, pointing the fingers back at God and saying, well, God, um, 
your church just isn't doing it for me. I didn't like that song today. God, I didn't like this today. I didn't like this. And by the way, when are they going to get the ceiling fixed? When's the steeple going to go back up? When are they going to do this, God? I'm just, I'm so frustrated with that church up on the hill, Lord. I just don't know what to do. Well, praise the Lord. Then you know what my life is like a little bit. Because every day I'm like, when are we going to get the steeple up? When are we going to fix the sanctuary? When are we going to do these things? Right? And God says, I'm in control. And I operate on a different level than you. My ways and my thoughts are higher than your ways and your thoughts. Thus saith the Lord. I'm like, all right, gotcha. Right? We have to be so careful about our religiosity. See, look at verse 12 again with me. God says... Turn ye even to me with all your heart. He says, and notice how he says, how are we going to return to him with all our heart? He says, you need to do it with fasting. When was the last time we had a good old-fashioned fast? He says, you need to do it with weeping. Anybody cry over their sin recently? Not, Not the sin of the nation. Not the sin of anybody else, but the sin of me, myself, and I. He says you need to do it with fasting, weeping, and mourning. You see, Proverbs 28 reminds us of a, of a promise and a truth from God's word. It says, he that covereth his sins shall not prosper. And whoso confesseth and forsaketh them shall have mercy. Oh, we have a merciful God. He loves us and he wants to, wants to bless us. But there is a way to those blessings. 1 John 1, 9 is that iconic passage that we love to do a disservice to If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Oh, you see, the Lord is looking for people who are sorrowful for their sin. He's looking for people who are honest about their own spiritual condition before they look to somebody else's spiritual condition. He's looking for people that he can bless. Remember, as the church goes, so goes the nation. What a sobering thought. How can I expect or how can we expect God to bless if we do not heed his call to return and to repent? By the way, God's plea here, if you look, it's a gracious plea because gracious plea as well. Look at verse 13 again. Guys, notice what, notice what the Bible, how it describes God. It says here that our God is gracious. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for your amazing grace. He's a gracious God. He's merciful. He's slow to anger. He's not like a parent in Walmart. Some of you just woke up. He's not like the parent in Walmart. I've been there, done that. Oh, you know, the kid says, I want to look at this, and then they're looking with their hands. No, we look with our eyes. Don't touch your hands, Casey Byron. Right? (laughs) He knew that was coming. That joker, when he was a little kid, he always wanted to go to the toy lane. He wanted to go to the toys. I'm like, he's like, dad, 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 dad. <laughs> like broken record. I just want to look. I just want to look. I was like, well, then do me a favor. When you get about three quarters of the way down that aisle, you just be looking with them eyes and not with the hands. Oh, it never seemed to work out that way, though. God's plea is gracious. There's no doubt. Guys, here's the thing. There's no doubt in my military mind. Oh, yes, I still have a military mind about me. There's no doubt in my military mind that when you and I repent of our sins, that God will forgive. 
thank you, those who actually said, thank you, Lord, for forgiving me by saying amen. There's no doubt that he'll do that, but here's what I want us to remember. There's no guarantee that he'll remove the temporary affliction or punishment for sin. Well, I don't like that. I don't know about that. I don't like that. Well, I have two examples for you that prove what I'm saying. In one example, God did. In one example, he didn't. You remember David's sin with Bathsheba? David sins with Bathsheba, and the prophet Nathan comes to David and reveals to him that he's the man that sinned in the whole story. And, and then we see David's repentance. He acknowledges God, but God has already told him. He says, I got some news for you. The sword's going to rise up in your house. Evil's going to be in your house all the days of your life. I'm going to do with your wives, plural, what you did with Uriah, the Hittite's wives. That's a whole nother conversation. Then he says, oh, David, by the way, you have caused the enemies of God to, to blaspheme because of your actions. And then you remember the last thing that he tells David. He says, that child, that child that you love, that child is going to die. You remember David's response? David begins to weep. He begins to mourn. He begins to fast. He goes into a time of when he's seeking God. He is on his knees and the people are like, David, you got to eat. You got to eat. And he's like, get away from me. He's, he's focused. He's focused on God. And then at the end of it all, he hears them whispering. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, he hears them whispering. So he perceives that the child is dead. And so David, he gets up and he washes and he gets ready to go eat. And they're all asking, what, what are you doing? What are you doing? He says, when the child was alive, he said, I wept and I mourned and I did all these things because who knows whether God will hear me and let the child live. Look at our text in Joel chapter 2, verse 14. Who knoweth if he will return and repent and leave a blessing behind him. The other example, and so what the, the point is that when David did all this, God's answer was no. But you remember another little story about a missionary who, who God said, you're going down to Nineveh. You remember Jonah? He went a run and he went on down to get in the boat to Tarshish and he was headed to Joppa and all that. Who struck John? The great fish spits him up and God says, uh, let me tell you a second time, since you're a hard of hearing, go over to Nineveh and preach uh, the gospel. Go preach that uh, judgment is coming. And so Jonah in chapter 2, he goes over, and, and chapter 3, he goes over, and the king of Nineveh, when he hears that Jonah says, you got 40 days, Nineveh, you know what the king does? The king orders a fast. <laughs> he gets a fast. He gets weeping and mourning. He tells everybody in Nineveh, you got to get back to God. you got to focus on God. And here's what the king of Nineveh also does. He not only commands a fast amongst the people, if you read the passage in Jonah chapter 3, not even the animals are allowed to eat. With David, God said no. But if you know the story in the book of Jonah, you know that with the king of Nineveh and the Ninevites, he turned around and destroyed it later on, but you know that the Ninevites, God said yes. And he withheld he withheld the punishment that was coming their way. Sadly, we live in a day and age where evil is called good and good is called evil. And even in our churches, it saddens me, but I look around and some of our churches are adopting policies that promote sinful behavior and they punish people who are trying to live holy. It doesn't make sense. 
But I was reminded in Scripture that there's nothing new under the sun. Because in Isaiah 5.20, we see what God says through Isaiah in his time. He says, whoa. He says, whoa. By the way, when God says, whoa, that's not good. That ain't like a cowboy saying, whoa, little horsey. No, he's saying, whoa, to them. Notice it says, to them that call evil good and good evil, that put darkness for light and light for darkness and put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe unto them that, wise, that are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. Does that sound like 2019? Woe unto them that are mighty to drink wine and men of strength to mingle strong drink. Oh, listen, today fear has replaced faith. Sin has replaced sanity. Greed has replaced God. And hatred has replaced holiness and love. Someone much smarter than me said this. He said, our pews are full, but our altars are empty. Let me just think, let that sink. Our pews are full, but our altars are empty. We get more excited about a shopping trip than we do a revival meeting. We wink at sin and wince at the holy demands of God. We have lost our fire, our power, and our desire for the things of God. We would rather play than pray. We would rather have our ears tickled than our hearts searched by the Word of God. We would rather be entertained than to be challenged from God's Word. We would rather stay like we are than become more like He is. Folks, it should be no surprise in 2019 that our nation is in the shape that it's in. Not because of our nation, but because of our churches are in the shape they are in believe, I really believe that the Lord is pleading with us to return and repent. Look back at scripture in verse 15. Read with me. Read with me the rest of the story as Paul Harvey says. Blow the trumpet in Zion, sanctify a fast, call a solemn assembly. Listen, gather the people, sanctify the congregation. That means, that word sanctify means set apart. The congregation is to be set apart. We're to be holy. It says, set apart, sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children and those that suck the breast. Let the bridegroom go forth of his chamber and the bride out of her closet. Let the priest and the ministers of the Lord weep between the porch and the altar. Let them say, spare thy people, O Lord. It's calling the ministers and the leaders of the church to cry out to God for his mercy. To spare the people. Oh, listen, God's call was for everyone. Youngest to oldest to come back to him. He was calling the spiritual leaders. Guys, he's not only calling myself and the staff to get on our knees and to pray and to fast and to do these things. He's calling all of us. If you teach a Sunday school class, he's calling you. If you sing in a choir, he's calling you. If you're a greeter, you're an usher, you're a leader, he's calling you to do these same things. And by the way, as believers, he's calling all of us to do these things. Because whether you serve in a position here or not, and I pray that you will serve the Lord, whether you serve in a position here in the local assembly or not, you're called to fill a position in his service. Oh, he's calling all of us to return to him. And so I ask the question, are we truly seeking to live according to God's word, according to God's will, and according to God's ways? Or do the things of God become a distant second, third, fourth? We can keep on going all day, fifth. Where, where am I in my relationship with God? That's the question we all must ask because God is making a plea. Last week I said, I talked to you about um, eternity and I shared the verse from Colossians 3.2 that talks about setting our affection on things above and not on things of the earth. Jesus Christ himself said in Matthew 6.33, an iconic verse, 
Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And then all these other things that you have need of. He says, God will take care of those things. Oh, this is what he's saying. In Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven. Jesus reveals the first and the greatest commandment when he says that we're to love the Lord thy God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, and with all of our mind. Oh, God is to be priority number one. And so God is making a plea to us, I believe, this morning as we prepare to celebrate the independence of this nation. He's making a plea to us, not as a nation, but as individuals in his church. He's making the plea. Not only is he making a plea, but he also gives them a promise. I'm so thankful for the promises of God. Notice verse number 18. And we wrap it up. Verse 18 says, then. Notice the, ver the word then. He says, if you'll do all these things, then notice the word in verse number 18. He says, then will the Lord be jealous. He says, then will the Lord be jealous for his land. And I love this. Pity his people. I'm so thankful that the Lord takes pity on us. <laughs> I'm so thankful that he's long-suffering with us. Uh, he's patient with us. It says he'll take pity on us. That's good news. Yea, the Lord will answer and say unto his people, Behold, I will send you corn and wine and oil, and you shall be satisfied therewith. And I will no more make you a reproach among the heathen. But I will remove far off from you the northern army and will drive him into a land barren and desolate. He said, all those enemies that have come up against you, I'm going to send them on away. Wouldn't that be nice? Wouldn't that be nice if the Lord would just do that, right, and send them away? He says, I'm going to send them away to a barren and desolate place with his face toward the east sea and his hinder part toward the uttermost sea. And his stink shall come up, and his ill savor shall come up, because he hath done great things. Fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice, for the Lord will do great things. Be not afraid, ye beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness do spring, and for the tree beareth her fruit, and the fig tree and the vine do yield their strength. Be glad then, ye children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he hath given you the former rain moderately, and he will cause to come down for you the rain, the former rain, and the latter rain in the first month. And the floors shall be full of wheat, and the vats shall overflow with wine and oil, and I will restore to you the years that the locust has eaten. He says, I'm going to give it all back. All the sufferings, I'll give it all back. He says, and the canker worm, and the caterpillar, and the palmer worm, my great army which I sent among you, and ye shall eat in plenty and be satisfied. Praise the name of the Lord your God that hath dwelt wondrously with you, and my people shall never be ashamed. And ye shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, and that I am the Lord your God, and none else, and my people shall never be ashamed. Oh, this is what God was saying to the children of Israel back then. And in short, he was saying, I need you to return and to repent. But once you do, I'm going to restore you. Not only am I going to restore you back to where you were, I'm going to bless you abundantly. I'm going to do exceeding abundantly above all that you could ever ask or think. Children of God, God promises to deliver them from their enemies. He promises to feed them and to satisfy them. How amazing is our God's grace, right? In verses, actually in verse 23 and 24, uh, 23 to 25, it's a pretty interesting picture here because God actually promised to to send revival to the land. He talks about the former rain, 
He says, the, the ground that was uh, overtaken by a drought, he says, I'm going to send the former rain to get the ground, the soil. I'm going to prepare the soil with the former rain. And then he says, I'm going to send the latter rain so that in the time of harvest, the crops will be right where they need to be. Oh, that's a good God. Oh, listen. He promised to replace everything that had been lost during the droughts and devastation. And I just put in my notes, oh, how we need our Heavenly Father to send the heavenly rains, if you please, of revival once again. Yes, I remember singing a song years ago entitled, One Drop of Blood. And in that song, it talks about the fact that the enemy is mighty. But I'm also reminded of another song by Chris Tomlin when he talks about our God. When he says that our God is greater. Our God is stronger. Take encouragement this morning. Encourage yourself in the Lord. Understanding that greater is he that's in you than he that's in this world. Oh, we need his presence. We need his power. We need his protection. And we need his provision. And God says, if you'll return to me, if you'll repent, I will do these things. Look with me at one passage, and I close the message from Romans chapter 13. I want you to see something in the New Testament as we close this message. In Romans chapter 13, God called, he made a plea to them, and he gave them a promise. Notice what God's word says here in Romans chapter 13, beginning in verse number 11. And the Bible says, and that, knowing the time, that now, say that word with me, now, now, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep. For now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. Now let me just stop right here for a second. I alluded to the fact earlier that I didn't understand all the rules with the hashtag. But there's a truth that I understand very vividly. And this is not to get everybody sullen. But I understand that I have fewer todays and tomorrows than I had yesterdays. Now is my salvation nearer than when I first believed. There's no blank checks in life. We're not guaranteed one day beyond the breath that we're taking right now. And the Bible says here, it is high time to awake, for now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. Look at verse 12. The night is far spent. The day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness. Let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk honestly. Church of God, let us walk honestly as in the day, not in rioting and drunkenness, not in chambering and wantonness, that idea of being consumed with self, not in strife and envying, but put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ and make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. Listen, may the Lord help us to wake up. Thank you, Linda. May the Lord help us to wake up. May the Lord convict us to return and to repent individually of our own wicked ways. I don't need to worry about your wicked ways. I need to worry about my wicked ways and repent if there's any wicked way in me. And May the Lord send us a revival in our hearts 
and in our churches. And then we'll begin to see things done. For the most part, I put down here as, I, as a closing thought, because of how we are living our lives as Christians, much like, much like David in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 14, much like him back then, we are giving great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. We wonder why people don't want Jesus. We wonder why the pew right beside you is empty. It ain't because of Pastor Greg. It ain't because of the music. It ain't because of whatever else you want to fill in the blank. I believe it's because we're not living a life that draws people to Christ. And that's for all of us. From the top all the way down and from the bottom all the way up. See, we're living a life that gives great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. But here's what I learned a long time ago when my neighbor, after six years, came across the street and she wanted me to pray with her husband and her because they were mourning the loss of their son who, who for whatever reason, she felt confident in coming to me and asking me to pray. And I said, why would you ask me to pray with you? And you know what she said? Because my husband and I have watched you and your wife for six years. And I believe you legitimately have a relationship with God. I was like, what? I said, you've been watching me? I said, uh, that's a little creepy. And she said, she said, we've been watching because we're trying to figure out who's a fake and who's not. And she says, my husband and I really need prayer. So I went across the street and I was privileged to pray with them. I was later privileged to invite them and they came here to Battlefield. Can you imagine that? That guy got all gussied up. He was wearing an old fedora hat when he walked in here. He walked in strutting with his cane. He said, man, I figured if I was coming to God's house, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to look good. And I said, well, you look good today, brother. And he came into the Lord's house. And I can tell you our relationship with that couple has continued over the years because of what the gospel has meant to them. Oh, listen, 2 Chronicles, and I know a lot of people love to beat this verse down with a stick and don't like to think about it. But God was speaking to Solomon at the, at the dedication of the temple. And he gives him a principle there as well for us. And it says, if my people, which are called by my name, will get out of their own way. <laughs> will get rid of their prideful attitudes. Right? No, it says, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. God says, then will I hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. Remember what I said at the beginning? As the church goes, so goes the nation. The plea and the promise from God to Judah back then was abundantly clear. And I believe it's abundantly clear today. And the great news is it's not too late. It's not too late. It's not too late. He's making the plea. He's making the plea. The question is, will we answer? His gracious plea is a demanding plea. He says, even saith now, even now, even though all these things are going on, if you'll return to me, if you'll repent, oh, I believe he'll forgive us. I believe he'll do some things in our midst. Joel chapter 2 verse 13 encourages me and says it's not too late because our God is gracious. He's merciful. He's slow. He's slow to anger. Of great kindness 
Or why not call on him today? Why not take a trip back to that old familiar place known as the altar and call out to him and say, Lord, break my heart for what breaks yours. Lord, forgive me for my own sinfulness. Lord, do a work in my heart. Why not, if you've never trusted Christ today, why not call out upon the name of the Lord and receive him as the Lord and Savior of your life? I can't do that, but he can. And he's gracious, right? Oh, he's a good God. He's merciful. He's slow to anger, and he's a God of kindness. I pray you'll do business with him as he is calling us all this morning to do so. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like more information about our ministry, check out our website at battlefieldbaptist.org or follow us on Facebook and Instagram. We'll see you next time.